have your <coughs> Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 24. I know many of you are saying, still, Matthew 24, yeah, at least one more week. But uh, as we take a look at what the Lord has for us this morning, I want to invite you to read with me, beginning at verse 36. There's just a, a, few, cha- or a few verses we'll be looking at uh, this morning. So if you read with me from Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time and we can study your word. Lord God, I pray that you would give unto us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would anoint this time with your presence. Father, that our hearts would be willing to receive. Father, that we would be willing to uh, uh, just allow your spirit to guide us and lead us in truth. Lord, as we lift this time before you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's interesting. As we take a look at Matthew 24, some of the challenges when we study the the chapter, Matthew 24 and 25, as Jesus is answering two questions that the disciples asked. Remember, their first question had to do with the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? Jesus said, remember, not one stone will be left upon another. And he's answered that question. And then they asked, what will be the the sign of your coming? And the word for coming is a word that means to come and stay. When are you going to set up your kingdom? What's it going to be like? When's that going to take place? And Jesus has been answering that question. But as he answers these questions, and as he goes through these scriptures to enlighten the disciples on the signs of the times, and we've been talking about that for a couple of weeks, what's it going to look like? What's the world going to be like? What are the things that are going to be happening as we, as we, or what are the things that are going to be happening as we come up to the time of, uh, of the return of the king? And he's given us very definitive signs, and I want to remind you of that. Jesus said that when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not in the holy place, then run. Daniel tells us the abomination of desolation happens at the midway point, the tribulation period. So you know, from that moment, there are three and a half years to the time Jesus Christ will put his foot on the ground and his kingdom will happen but then over and over and over throughout the scripture not just one or once or twice the lord says be ready for what you know not when the lord is coming he gave us a very specific sign That we would know the day that Jesus Christ set his foot on the earth. But over and over again, he says, be ready, for the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now as we look this morning, I am not going to pretend that I will illuminate you. (laughs) And you will have all your questions answered. But I hope to be able to present to you what I believe. And what I see as I study the scripture, and what I see the Lord saying as we look at these areas. And so as we begin, let's take a look at verse 36. Because in verse 36, 
There's a, a phrase that is I hear often misused or misapplied. And uh, so let's take a look at it. Verse 36. But of the day and the hour, no one knows. Let me tell you about an error we make in Bible study. In Bible study, we try to take Hebrew idioms and we make, try to make them Western. And you can't do that. We read of that day and that hour, no one knows. And so we say, as we look at that, well, yeah, but you can know, you know, the signs of the times. Well, <laughs> in a general sense, you can understand that. But this Hebrew idiom, no one knows the day or the hour, simply means no one knows when he's coming. That's what it means. There's no other things to, to read into it. When this Hebrew idiom is used, this is what he's saying. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The first thing we want to look at, the first thing that we want to consider is, it is impossible to know when Jesus will return. And you have to reconcile that with the fact that we know from the abomination of desolation till the time Christ sets his foot on the earth is three and a half years. But it's impossible to know the return of Christ. When we look at scriptures, and as we study, you're going to see that there are, if you want to to call it that, one physical return of Christ to the earth, and one catching up of his body in the clouds. And as we go through scripture, and as we look at it, that catching up of the body, there's often this argument that takes place uh, within or among church folk of the concept of the rapture. I don't care what you call it. Some people will say there's no such thing as a rapture. Fine. The word rapture is not in the church or in the Bible. It's not there. Call it the harpazo then. Because the harpazo, the Latin word for harpazo is rapturo, which is the word from which we get rapture. Okay. So you can call it the great harpazo if you want, if that makes you happy. But the scripture talks about a time when Jesus Christ will come in the clouds. When he will call his church to him. The promise is in John chapter 14. You remember? Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house. Are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. So that when I, so that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you where? Unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. The promise of Jesus bringing the body unto himself. We're going to spend plenty of time in our lives apart from Jesus Christ. But the day will come when we will spend eternity in his presence. We will always see him. We will always be with him. These these items are are not up for, for dispute. That's what the word teaches. Period. It's there. And as we look at this section of Matthew chapter 24... Part of what we want to see, and if you go and and read ahead a little bit this week, you're going to read two parables. And both of those parables have to do with the same thing. What is that? Be ready. Be ready. Why? Because you do not know when your Lord returns. I think in Matthew chapter 24, in this section of scripture, he begins to turn his eyes. The Lord turns his gaze. And hopefully we'll be able to represent that to you as we take a look at the scripture. He turns his gaze from his return, from the setting up of the kingdom. And he turns that gaze to the disciples. We'll see in a moment. And he's going to give them this hope. This promise. And while you're sitting there thinking about this, I want you to hold on to this. By the way, this hope is not a hope to escape anything. There is a promise in the scriptures. It is for every believer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Period. I'm not talking about persecution or hard times or the escaping of anything like that. All I'm saying is there will be a day 
when the Lord calls his church to him. And that is his focus as we take a look here in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36. <clears throat> no one knows the hour. No one knows the time. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, in a parallel scripture in the, in the Gospels, it says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father. A lot of people have struggled with that concept. In fact, in Matthew uh, verse 36, he says, Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Only. In Philippians chapter 2, we are introduced to a, to a Greek phrase called, or from which we get the theological term, the great kenosis. Jesus Christ emptied himself. Keneo. He, he emptied himself. And as we try to understand, what does that mean? When God comes from heaven to earth, he emptied himself. The scriptures and the Apostles' Creed declares that he was fully God and fully man. So, so we know that he didn't empty himself of his deity. What was, what was emptied in that place? As he walked earth, there were certain things about his deity that he did not utilize. One of those being his, his omniscience, the ability to, to know everything. His omnipresence. He laid aside some things. Yet, fully God, yet, fully man. It's a, it's a great mystery. But as we look at it, here's where we get the definition of the term. In the Roman army, there's a guy called a centurion. You guys ever heard of those guys? Those guys are like the sergeant majors of uh, the Marine Corps. At least, that's how I relate it. Uh, army guys might say first sergeant. I don't know, but that's how I did it. And when I looked at those guys... In the Roman army, when they would come to battle, the centurion had the coolest, trickiest, most awesome uniform ever. He had all this gold and, and red, and it was beautiful and magnificent to watch the centurion walk down the road. But when he came to battle, he took all that off, and he wore what everybody else wore, and he fought in the gutter, with his men. And the Greek word for that is the kineo, the kenosis, emptying of himself, taking off or stripping himself of his robes of royalty and fighting just like everybody else. And so as we take a look at scripture, we can see that the scripture allows for us to understand that. But then as we go on in verse 37, he's going to begin to tell us, he's going to illustrate for us. He's going to give us an illustration of his coming. What's it going to be like? What's a, what's things going to look like? And so he tells us in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, okay, the days of Noah, not as Noah was, not as the flood is, as the days of Noah, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days, what's that phrase? Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they <clears throat> did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now oftentimes when we look at this and we, we begin to look at as the days of Noah, people have a, a variety of ideas of what this talking about and what this means. But I think it illustrates for us at least three things. And the first one that we don't want to run away from is, is immediately on the forefront for us. And that is it illustrates, number one, the patience of God. It illustrates the patience of God as the days of Noah were. The patience of God. Well, we know that. Turn with me to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 20 and 21. For those in a ladies' study on Friday, I think you guys just went through this, huh? <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
says, who formerly were disobedient, speaking of Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. The first thing that the days of Noah speak of is the patience of God. The patience of God is long-suffering, waiting, desiring that no one would perish. In fact, the scripture goes on to say, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, we see the patience of God as he waited in the days of Noah. And then he tells us what the flood is all about, what the flood represents, what the flood pictures. We don't get to decide what we think it should be or shouldn't be. The flood, he says, here is an antitype. And the antitype of the flood is baptism. Antitype. Anti in the, in the Greek sense. It means pseudo. It's a pseudotype, a substitution it's an example. What happened in the flood? It's, let's not make it hard. Let's make it simple. What happened in the flood? Everybody died. What happens in baptism? You symbolize your death to your old life and your rising to new. You have a substitutionary type. Dying in the flood waters, being raised anew. This is what Peter is, is speaking of. This is what he's <clears throat> laying out for us. He says, not the removal of filth of the flesh, not that that is the the act that saves or brings salvation, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That word answer is the word apologetic. It's the apologetic. It's the reason for the hope that is within us. It is the answer. It is often the, the, the question that I would ask is, why, why would we not follow Christ in obedience in baptism? To show the world proudly that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to go down in the water and come out. And I don't really care what you think about it. That's Baptism is proclaiming my side. Who I am. I am a Christian. A believer in Christ Jesus. I follow him. But it symbolizes that death. And being raised to new life. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This concept of the patience of God is also carried out in 2 Peter chapter 3. Just turn to the right a couple of pages. In 2 Peter chapter 3, this, this verse you'll remember. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. But He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that what any should perish but that all should come to repentance. There's only one reason God is patient, as in the days of Noah. Why is He patient? He is waiting so that all who will can come to repentance. That's why God is patient. That's why we wait and watch and pray. That God would do this perfect work that He wants to do so he begins the illustration of his coming with this, with this emphasis on the patience of God, that God is patient. But then he moves from that point, guys, he moves right from there to the problem of not being ready. He says, listen, here's the patience of God, but then immediately as he's going through talking about the times of, of Noah in verse 39, he says, and they did not know. They were not Ready. They didn't believe anything that had ever been told them. In the days of Noah. For 120 years, Noah began to build a boat. And there were people who walked up to him and said, What are you building? And he said, A boat. And they say, What's that? Something that floats on the water. Do you know you're in the middle of the land right now, Noah? There's no water around here. Or there's going to be. 
Now, if you'd have told me last week that we were going to have a lake in our grass, I might not have believed you. But seeing is believing, right? Isn't that what we say? Seeing is believing? Well, listen, scripturally, seeing is believing too late. They did not know. They were not ready. And the flood came. And they all died. They all perished. They all were taken. How? By what? The flood, right? They were all taken by the flood. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, not only do we have this problem of not being ready, but then he lays out for us a pattern of life. Look, in verse 38 it says, For as in the days of Noah before the flood they were doing what? Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right? Again, we do not get to westernize an eastern idiom. The Hebrew idiom means this is a pattern of life. Eating and drinking, you've heard this before. If you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes or other places in the scripture, you have heard this phrase before. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's an idea or a concept of they were following the normal pattern of life for that time. Now, I don't mean normal for how we're thinking of it right now. I mean normal for as it is in the days of Noah. And if you've studied as it was in the days of Noah, normal in the days of Noah is not maybe what we would think of as normal. So in order for us to really understand what he's talking about is this pattern of life. What's the pattern of life? For in the days of Noah, you got to go to Genesis chapter 6. So flip over there. Some people right now are panicking. Is he really going to talk about Genesis 6? Yes. <clears throat> we have to. We have to. We have to understand what is he talking about? As it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be. So let's look at chapter 6. We're just going to read together from uh, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. <clears throat> Noah walked with God. Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And the earth also was corrupt before God and filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. As it was in the days of Noah. The pattern of life we have here in Genesis chapter 6. The pattern of life. The first thing we see in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. Maybe you'd miss it uh, as we, if we just read through it casually. But listen. Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. The first thing we have is a population explosion. In those days. The scripture laid out for us. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. If we go through from the time of Adam until this time, there's 1,656 years. If you go through the genealogies, which you're welcome to do, as you go through those genealogies, here's what you'll hear. 
Each one of them, it'll tell you the year they began to have children, and it will say that they had sons and daughters. Both plural. So every name name had at least two sons and at least two daughters. If we just back up and go through the genealogy and allow for each one of these guys to have two sons and two daughters for 1,656 years, some people come to a number that is a bit staggering at the time of the flood. Ten billion. That's two sons, two daughters only. And they lived for 900 years then. Now, granted, after two sons and two daughters, they might have said, that's it. So the number could be much greater than that. The first thing we see, as it was in the days of Noah, we see a population explosion. It's interesting because one of the leading paleontologists actually says this, there are bones everywhere. Everywhere. Do you realize that when they... When they look through the fossil evidence and the, the bones that are found in the strata, which amazingly are, are found in higher strata, which I'm sure that when the flood occurred, nobody ran to the mountains, right? Nobody went up. They just all stayed down in the valleys. They, they find these bones. You know how they find the bones? Scrambled, mangled, broken, dashed, hammered. They cannot tell whether it's a bone of an animal or a man. And he says, man, we know that sooner or later we're going to find what we're looking for because there are bones everywhere. Yeah. That kind of fits with the biblical picture of the deluge, the flood. Bones everywhere. There's a population explosion there were people all over the place. But the next thing that we see, not just a, a population explosion, we see moral corruption. Look at verse 2. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all they chose. Now before I get into the crazy stuff, let me just tell you the plain stuff. Here's the stuff we don't have to look hard into. Okay, you ready? They took... The word they use is wives. It does not say they took women. It says they took wives. You don't get to look at it with western eyes. You have to look at it with eastern eyes. What's that mean? They took women. The word for took, by the way, is violent. They took, snatched away, took by force, wives. Not that they made them wives, but they took ones that were already wives. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Is a violent word. It is not a nice, sweet, oh, they just got married. And what a sweet little thing. These sons of God, these good people, and these daughters of men, these bad girls. And you know, the bad girls always ruin the good boys. Have you heard that before? Listen, the word being used here of the sons of God, just so you understand, is a word to take by force violently. Not women, but wives. To take whatever woman they want, however many they want, whenever they want. It, in the very least, speaks of moral corruption. In the very least. The phrase, sons of God, is the word, Bene Ha Elohim. Every time it is used in the Old Testament, it is used in reference to angels. In the New Testament, a different phrase, because the New Testament is not written in Hebrew. Everybody knows that, right? In the New Testament, the phrase sons of God sometimes refers to believers. But never the phrase, Beni Ha Elohim. In 270 B.C., the very first book... Ever written in an, another language 
was the Old Testament scriptures that were translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. That version, if you will, of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. It is the version that Jesus quoted from. In the Septuagint, Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 reads, Angels. That the angels violently took, we don't know what that means, and don't go flying off into crazy land. It just means that the angels violently took wives, women, there was something going on. And it was something demonic. Now, I know, everybody thinks Jackie's crazy, but while you're thinking I'm crazy, let's just turn to two places, we'll take quick looks and we'll move on. I won't spend a lot of time uh, <clears throat> on the Beni Ha'orohim, I just want you to understand there's moral corruption going on, we can all agree with that. In 2 Peter chapter 2, <coughs> if you turn there, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, Peter is going to illuminate on this period of time. It's always best when we allow the scriptures to be the commentary upon the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and they did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. So these angels are associated with the ancient world. Same sentence. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and preserved righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, the scripture calls Lot, Dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust for punishment. Listen, what he says here about the angels in the beginning. God did not spare the angels who sinned in the ancient world at the time of Noah. If we turn to our right to a little book called Jude, it comes right before the book of Revelation. In Jude, there is only one chapter. So in Jude, verse 6 and 7, it says, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and that phrase, by the way, that means as, it means in exactly the same way. In exactly the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these, to what? To the angels, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh. The word for strange is heteros. It means of a totally different kind. To have gone after strange flesh or set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Whatever occurred in Genesis chapter 6, and believe me, men smarter than me are still arguing about it. I don't have to know exactly what happened. You know what I do know? There was moral corruption. There was sexual immorality. As it was in the days of Noah... So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. $84 a second in the United States is spent on pornography. $84 a second. That's mind-boggling. And the word pornography is the exact same word. Ek. Porneo, sexual immorality, as it was in the days of Noah. Whatever happened in the days of Noah certainly had demonic activity going on. There was something happening with the fallen angels. They were doing something. I'm not saying what they were doing, 
they were in possessing, maybe there's a mass possession, whatever they did. When the Lord saw it, he said, this is it. This is it. I'm going to destroy all flesh. And before we think, oh, it's a, the poor angels or the angels took advantage of all the poor people. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, in fact, as we look at the scripture, let's move on to the very next thing. In verse 5 of Matthew, or I'm sorry, of Genesis 6, says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. That word great means it's, a, it's, it's humongous. It's un- uncontainable. The wickedness of man. And he saw not only with the wickedness of man, but every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That's mankind. So whatever was going on in the world, this, this <clears throat> moral, this, this moral corruption, there was wickedness on the part of mankind. And the third thing that we really see leaping out at this time is violence. Violence, as it was in the days of Noah. In verse 11 it says, The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. In verse 13, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. The other thing that it was as in the days of Noah is violence. The earth is corrupted by the violence, the struggles, the problems that are going on. Is, it, is that hard to see that these things in our world today? A population explosion? Well, we're not at 10 billion yet, but we're close. Population explosion, moral corruption. Is it hard to see moral corruption, sexual immorality in our world today? No, that's not hard to find. How about violence? Have you ever, in your memory, ever turned on the news and not read about someone being killed or someone being, somehow violence being perpetrated upon another? Every day. Breaks my heart. To see the stories of the things that man will do to man. And all of that is a work of sin in our lives. It's sin. It's not their environments, not how they were raised, it's not what was going on in their life. It's sin. That's the problem. The problem is sin, running amok, violence, moral corruption. The last thing that we see in the in Genesis chapter 6 is what we've kind of alluded to already. Demonic infiltration. There's demons doing. Things are happening. The demonic world is alive and active. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 went so far as to say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers in the darkness. What's he talking about? He's saying our battle is not against men. We, men sometimes appear as that part that, that are against us or coming against us in some way. But the scripture lays out to us the power behind that attack is spiritual. It's spiritual in nature. We're so quick to relegate the spiritual to some realm of hocus pocus and, and not believe that, that there are spiritual battles happening right now in this place, this moment. There are demons and angels in this place battling over the souls of men. I don't know how it looks. I don't know what it looks like. But I know the scripture talks about it. And it's happening. So there was demonic activity, violence, a population explosion, and moral corruption. So when we go back to Matthew chapter 24, and we read that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, there was a pattern of life. Remember, that's an idiom. For there's a pattern of life in the days of Noah. The pattern of life has just been laid out for us. Population explosion, moral deterioration, violence, demonic activity taking place. This is what we see in this illustration. But I don't want to just leave you there. That's not the only thing that's illustrated in the days of Noah. So as you hold your finger in Matthew 24, just flip to the right to Hebrews 11. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 7. 
The other thing that's illustrated in that time is faith. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, he moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The other thing that was as in the days of Noah was his faith to believe what God promised. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. Well, as we look at Matthew chapter 24, the next thing we see is we need an interpretation of those who are taken and those who are left. Now, you guys... If you've ever gone through Matthew 24 before, you know there are two views. There are two views. Usually one view or the other is taught, and it's taught in a very simplified manner. I hope today, my goal today is to make you hungry to find out, to study, to know, to learn, to grow. I don't want to just spoon feed you answers. I want you to go, what did he just say? Does he mean that? What does that mean? Is that true? I want to provoke you to want to eat the Word, to devour the Word, to get into the Word. If I'm wrong, prove it. But I don't want to hear your opinion. I want to hear the Word. What's the Word say? What's the Word have to tell us? It says to us that in like manner, it says that these, in verse 39, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. The word took there is a word, areho, areho. Areho is to be taken in judgment. What happened to the guys who were taken? They died, right? What were they taken by? The flood. They're taken by the flood. Okay, let's take a look. Let's, let's make some careful uh, interpretation of what we're reading. The first thing we want to understand is we want to understand the people who are involved. So let's look at the people. The flood victims who were taken are non-believers, right? They didn't believe anything that Noah told them. Non-believers, and they did not know when the flood would come, right? They didn't know. They were non-believers. They didn't know, and they were taken, and they perished in the flood. Next, we have Noah and his family. Noah and his family. But Noah and his family is a little bit different because if you read Genesis chapter 7, you know what you're going to discover? They knew when the flood was coming. Hmm. They knew. As we are interpreting Scripture, we want to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And I understand these are difficult things to take a look at. They knew. They knew just as though I were telling you at the abomination of desolation, there's three and a half years until Christ puts his foot on the earth. You know when he's coming back, right? If you see the abomination of desolation, you can set your clock to the time when he's coming back. So as I look at Noah and his family, to me, they represent tribulation saints. They know what's happening. They know What's going on and what does God do? He preserves them through. He preserves them through. The ark we see is a picture of Jesus Christ. An ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. But then as we look at this, guys, it goes on in verse 40. And two men will be in one field, one taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in one mill, one taken, the other left. And then... Look at verse 42. Watch therefore for pronoun changes. You do not know the hour when the Son of Man is coming. So the third group of people we see in the scripture is the disciples. And what did he say of them? They were believers who what? Did not know when he was returning. If we look at how the scripture is broken out for us, then we can see the examples that are being laid out for us here in Matthew chapter 24. The disciples represent the church. 
Matthew says in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. You do not know. Three groups. Three groups. Listen, in in Hebrew thought, there is something called the comparison by contrast. Now, if you read through the Proverbs, you'll discover that as you go through the Proverbs. But let's not look at the Proverbs. Look at the words of Jesus. Jesus tells a parable. Do you remember the parable? He tells a parable of the, the unjust judge in the, in the, or the unjust steward. Remember the unjust steward? Now, when he's talking about the unjust steward, is he saying, you, my people, be like that unjust steward. Take advantage of people and rip them off. No. That's not what he's saying. He's doing a comparison by contrast. What's he saying? Don't be wicked like him, but you and this wicked guy are similar in this instance. Be similar in this instance. In the parables, when we go through them, he's not usually trying to make 50 points. He's trying to make one point. One point. A comparison by contrast. And that's what we see as we look at the days of Noah. Comparison by contrast. That's what we see as we take a look. Well, we got to keep going. Can't stay there very long. The other thing, that we understand the people involved. We have to understand the word taken. The word taken. Remember the first time I told you the word was arehu. It means to be taken in judgment. You remember? The word that's used in verse 40 and 41 is paralambano. Arejo and Paralambano are not anywhere close. They're not one letter apart. They're two totally different words for taken. Hmm. Let me help you understand. The word used for taken in verse 40 and 41 is the same word in John chapter 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Para Lambano. Unto myself. I will receive you. The first word for took is a word taken in judgment. The next two times it's used... And it's utilized, it's a word used to be received. It's a gentle word, not a harsh term in judgment. It's a word to be received gently. To be received gently. And as we look at these, as we, we want to understand the word taken. What's happening? There's, there's two views, I told you. That the one taken is taken in judgment. The one taken is one taken in judgment. And the one left is left to... Yeah, I guess he's left to the millennium. If it's during the tribulation period, the one taken in judgment is taken in judgment, and the other gets to go through the tribulation? Hmm. The one left, maybe, and that may be the that may be right. The other view is that the one taken is taken into Christ to meet Christ in the air. He is received unto him, and the one left is left for judgment. One taken, the other left. It still fits within Hebrew thought, within the Hebrew concept. What's my goal to to utterly confuse you? I hope not. (laughs) Maybe I have. Maybe I have. But in it all, as we go through this, in it all, there is one resounding challenge to you. Be ready. doesn't say be ready later. If you think it says be ready later, read the next two parables. Because the next two parables say, you better be ready now. Why would I have to be ready now if I don't have to worry about anything for seven to three and a half years, depending on my views? I have to be ready now. Today. Today is a day of salvation, the scripture declares. What is it that he he tells us here in Matthew? He says, therefore, in verse, uh, let's look at verse 43. 
But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you be ready. Be ready. Why? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I don't care which view you take. But as far as I'm concerned, when I look and I put the whole picture of Scripture together, there's only one that makes sense. Be ready. Be watchful. That's probably not something that the rest of the Scripture talks about, though, right? In Mark, just turn to the right real quick. Mark chapter 13, uh, beginning at verse 33. Same section of Scripture dealing with the, the ending portion. says, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Take heed, watch. Pray. He goes on to say, It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants to each his work. And he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. So Mark says, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I don't want you to lose sight of that. That meant that Jesus Christ told the disciples to live their lives every day looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And not only them, he says it to us. What I say to you, I say to all. Watch, be ready, for you do not know when he's coming. The coming he's talking about is the coming in the air. We know when he's coming on the ground. We don't know when he's coming for the church. Be ready. Look at the world today, man. It's just like it was in the times of Noah. Be ready. What are you waiting for? You think, I remember when I was growing up, I said, you know, when I go to high school, uh, when I go to high school, I'll finally live for Christ. Because the junior high didn't do so good. Then when I got out of high school, I said, when I go to college, I'll live for Christ. And when I went to college, I said, you know, when I get a job, I'll live for Christ. And then after my first job, I said, you know, my next job, I'll live for Christ. And then when I got to my next job, I said, you know, the next time I get a job, I'm going to live for Christ. I did that for like 17 years. Wandering aimlessly, never really making a stand, never making a claim for who I am. The scripture says, be ready. Now. Not later. Because next week, the two parables we look at, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the slave who thinks his master delays his coming. Listen, they're talking about one thing. Be ready. Be prepared. Be on the spiritual alert. Listen, we cannot live our lives with one foot in the world, one foot in Christ, living for the world all week, and then start shining on Sunday. We come put our happy little church faces on, and we walk in church, and we wear the mask of holiness. Who we are is who we show everyone we are. There's no such thing as a top secret believer. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. What's he doing? Seeking whom he may devour. Luke chapter 12 verse 35 says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are the servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the third and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, 
He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready for you do not know the coming of the Son of Man. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself even as he is pure. Be ready. Not tomorrow. Today. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for opportunity to study your word lord jesus god i know there's there's a lot of stuff we talked about today father and just quite plainly the garbage that comes from me just wash it away the word that comes from you father may it find fertile place within our lives may we hear the challenge that you gave to the disciples and to all who would come after watch and pray be ready today Be ready right now. Know that you have a relationship with the eternal God. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a church thing. It's not a thing at all. It's a reality. It's who I am. To be willing to proclaim myself. To proclaim myself in in action. How I live my life. To proclaim myself publicly in baptism. To proclaim myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. That I am His. Every day. I celebrate it today. I study every time I get a chance. Because I want to know Him. Because I want to be ready when he comes for me. I want to be ready when he whispers my name. I want to be ready when the Son of Man blows the trumpet and with the shout of the archangel he calls his church home. And I don't want that day because I'm afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of nothing. I have bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. I'll never have to bow my knee to anything else. I look for that day because more than I want anything in my life, I want Him. I want to see Him. I want to be with Him. I want to put my arms around Him. I want to tell Him I love Him. I want to be in His presence forever. So I want to watch I want to sit by the window and look out and think, today's the day. What would you have me do today, Lord? How would you have me talk to my neighbor? How would you have me do this job? How would you have me show my employer or my employee that I am yours, wholly and completely? God, when you come, I want to be found ready. Fathers, our prayer in this place, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in the lives of your people. For those who are struggling with their faith and making a stand for you, it's a daily thing. God, just encourage them today, one day at a time. One moment at a time. One step at a time. Live your life for Jesus Christ. Be ready. Be ready. For you do not know the day or the hour, the time when Jesus will call us home. 
But that day is glorious. And everyone who has that hope of looking for that day within them will purify themselves. Will not walk in sexual immorality. Will not be confounded by violence. Will not be drugged down into the ways of the world. But they will live their life for you. Lord, let that be us. Let that be our heart. As we seek to honor you. And all we do. And we give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus name. Amen. I ask the prayer counselors. If they'd move around the room. And if this morning the Lord has laid something on your heart. You have a need or something you'd like prayer for. I encourage you to meet up with one of the prayer counselors. We're going to close out in a word of worship. We invite you guys to hang out with us. And we look forward to seeing you. At the Bacon Wrap Hot Dogs. God bless you guys and go in peace.